0: Hello, hello, and welcome to The Mental Matchup, a podcast where we hope to shed light on one of the hardest competitions an athlete will ever face, the matchup against their own mind. Today, I sit down with Betsy Brenner. Betsy is an author, speaker, and mentor who shares her experience with disordered eating throughout this week's episode. She also opens up about dealing with her parents' challenging divorce, the pressures of being a student-athlete, and her identity being tied to a sport. After listening to the episode, don't hesitate to check out her memoir, The Longest Match, Rallying to Defeat an Eating Disorder in Midlife, which sheds light on her own journey and can help others heal with their own struggles. I'm so grateful for Betsy and coming on to talk a little bit about her story I think what makes her so unique is, you know, she really talks about the impact that events that happened when she was in her adolescent and how it, it it the impact of it, you know, forced her to really go internal and kind of live up to this image that ultimately, you know, came came full throttle at her in her early 40s and forced her to really reevaluate her life and in her emotions and kind of how she was showing up and in and, and relearning different things, um, and reflecting on the past. And I think it's really, really valuable. I know I, you know, tend to tended to when I was younger, really put like adults on a pedestal of they have it together, they know best. And the older I get, I the more I realize that we're all we're all so human and we're all just trying to figure it out and do the best with what we have and I love that Betsy came on and was so vulnerable about that reality and that everyone is continuing to learn no matter where you are in your life and everyone's going to continue to go through their own experiences their own struggles and I'm excited for everyone to listen so with that let's get into the episode. Jesse, thank you so much for coming on The Mental Matchup. I am beyond excited to have you on. I love getting so many different unique voices on the podcast, and I think this is going to be such an incredible conversation. To give the audience some context, can you give a little quick hit intro on who you are, where you are, and what you do?
1: Sure. I'd be happy to. And first of all, I'm just thrilled to be here. So thank you. Um, I'm Betsy Brenner, and I'm actually coming to you from Barrington, Rhode Island, which is a small town outside Providence, originally from Western New York, but I've called Rhode Island home for over 30 years. And I am an author. I wrote my memoir about my recovery journey journey from an eating disorder, anxiety, depression, grief, and loss. And I'm a recovery speaker and peer support mentor and support group facilitator. Amazing. Um,
0: you're not quite right down the road, but somewhat down the road for me. I'm in Boston, so a little bit close. What, what was, what were sports like in your life when you were young and you were growing up? Um, what kind of role did they play?
1: Well, tennis, uh, the sport of tennis, has been intertwined throughout my entire life, um, and I was a nationally ranked junior tennis player tennis after my academics was the number one thing in my life. I practiced six or seven days a week. I traveled to tournaments first around New York state, then around the country. And, um, a lot of things happened in my, my childhood in many ways, it was one of white suburban privilege, but my parents went through a horrible divorce I suffered from significant anxiety that I didn't know I had. So tennis had this role in my life that I didn't even realize until much later, but it was really such a tremendous source of self-esteem. I got a lot of positive attention um, as I got better and better. And um, it was also the only outlet for this anxiety and mild depression that I didn't even know I had. Um, The problem was tennis was so much a part of my identity that a lot of my happiness was too strongly connected uh, to whether I won or lost. Um, But at the same time, um, tennis gave me the opportunity to make friendships around the country, travel around the country, play at the Division I college level. But But I also always felt like I was disappointing my mom if I lost a match, I could have won. Um, so, so intertwined so many positives, but, um, also I, I didn't realize till I was much later looking back, um, how many other purposes my tennis served for me.
0: Yeah. I, I love that we're getting right into it because I think that that's a huge theme throughout some of my conversations, but even in my own life. And if it's not, a sport, if it's not, you know, tennis, like that, that validation that you get from being good at something, it Mm -hmm. makes you want to be even better. And it, it re it reinforces this idea that like, you are only worthy if you're good at what you're doing, or if, or even if you're not good at what you're doing, but maybe you're doing something your, your friends think is cool, that might not be serving you. And, and now like, kind of like looking back, I guess my question is around because I've seen this some similar themes in myself and I feel like that's something that a lot of young student athletes and even just like students quite frankly people in general like they need that validation how how have you kind of shifted that mindset from needing that validation and itching for that validation to you know being being okay with who you are and knowing who you are is the best thing ever. And you don't need to be, need to be top of anything or doing specific things to be worthy of being loved.
1: Well, that that's a great question. And um, so with tennis being such a huge part of my identity through my four years of college tennis at Brown university, started my career as number six on the ladder and finished at number one. So tennis remained throughout college, so connected to my identity and even though i was over 400 miles from home my mom expected me to call her after every match let her know how i did so um i always felt that need to prove myself and be, so the hardest part was after college um when i was so you know felt so satisfied with my tennis career and it was time to move to a city get my first job other than teaching tennis, which I did during college summers, um, live on my own, become independent. And I, at that point, my identity was so tied to tennis and my mom actually didn't even give me that unconditional approval. Wow, this is great. You had a wonderful career. Now you're going on with your life. She would have liked me to continue with tennis and maybe try Um, you know, low level satellite tournaments or whatever, just see how far my tennis could take me. But uh, having devoted, literally devoted 10 full years to tennis uh, 24 seven, it seemed like at times I was ready for the next step. But at first it was hard because I just, it was so connected to my identity. So it really took Um, I moved to Washington DC after college. I had a job in a law firm, um, barely played tennis, still played a little, but like many athletes, it was really hard at first to accept the fact that I was never going to be as good as I was. Um, and eventually, obviously I could recognize and accept that. But at first, sometimes it was easier just not to play at all and focus on, being a young adult in a big city with my first job then to see my level going down um so that was definitely a part of it and honestly um my identity sort of was re remade recrafted i went to law school got married had three children um but tennis came back into my life about you know 20 something years later and um that's a story in and of itself but tennis also became part of the getting back into tennis sort of became part of that perfect storm that led to a diagnosis of anorexia in my forties. And it, again, it goes back to undiagnosed anxiety, mild depression, and tennis was a way to escape all that. And, um, but it all came to a head.
0: I, yeah, I want to make sure we like paint this, paint the picture because I think there's so many really good nuggets in your experience that a lot of people kind of like you maybe are not realizing they're experiencing right now or have experienced, especially that younger adolescent. I experience like I think today I'm not a parent, um, but I parenting is crazy to me. You have one or two adults or multiple people, right? Like a vi- it takes a village that are essentially raising a kid. And you just, I feel like it's this crazy thing that you watch people grow and change and mirror what their parents are doing. Or, you know, if if their parents are kind of only seeing them when they're doing certain things, they tend to continue to do those things to get that love. For, it's just, parenting is so crazy. And, and you started touching on it a little bit um, with you know how that like childhood adolescence played a part down the role in your 40s, which is crazy knowing that something that can happen to you when you're so young impacts you for the rest of your life like I know people listening might be like, well yeah, that's like how like trauma happens and like that's how you become who you are and I'm like, yeah, but it's just wild that it can go, under the radar and then pop up and you're like, wow, this all makes sense. Can you talk a little bit about like what, what specifically, I guess, like you kind of experienced with those emotions, those feelings, those situations when you were younger that ultimately kind of led, led down this path to being diagnosed with disordered eating at an, like an older age than what is commonly talked
1: Mm -hmm. about. Absolutely. Um, Well, when I was a young child, my parents were divorced and went through a horrible, horrible divorce. And this was very uncommon, you know, in the 70s and not like it is today. And there wasn't the technology there is today to stay closely in touch with the other parent and all that. So what happened was I learned from an early age when my mom here, her life has been, as she knew it had been traumatically changed and she went on as if nothing happened. So that was literally the beginning of decades for me of internalizing any and all emotions. I hate to think of what would have happened had I not had tennis as a healthy outlet, um, but I never learned that it was okay to be sad or angry or questioned so it just led to my becoming you know striving to be this perfect good girl not to upset my mom and and I know there's no question that my sister and I were loved but it it often felt conditioned on success in the classroom, success on the tennis court and that was I learned, in recovery, that that was a result of her own issues and not having dealt with her trauma in a a healthy way. She had undiagnosed mental health issues. But I was raised in a home, almost like walking on eggshells had to be perfect. You know, I would feel like I was disappointing my mom. I can remember, you know, how'd you do on your math test? Oh, I got a 94. Oh, that's great. But you understand what you did wrong. Like I just always felt like whatever I did, it wasn't enough. And I learned pretty quickly that the way to make her happy was getting good grades and doing well in tennis, but I would feel guilty if I even thought a negative thought. Um, so I went through decades just internalizing any and all emotions, not having permission literally to be human. And, um, both of my parents were diagnosed with cancer when I was in college and um, died at relatively young ages. But because I had never learned to feel feelings, express emotions, I didn't know how to grieve. So that was just more emotions stuffed inside. I had these childhood diaries that I wrote a lot, learned a lot about myself. And I would literally, if I wrote anything slightly negative, I would follow it up even in a diary that nobody saw, but I love my life. Like I literally felt guilty for any negative thought or emotion. So when you take that way of dealing with life and compound it year after year with significant traumatic events, it's going to lead to the perfect storm ultimately. And that is what happened. But- I had a great life. So I didn't know it was okay to also feel sad or, or anything. And I had this significant anxiety that was never diagnosed. But looking back to write my memoir, I see all these examples of anxiety that was just never diagnosed. Did, did you think that that was,
0: I guess, like not experiencing emotions, where was normal. Like, I feel like because you've been, you know, you're married, you have kids. Like, I I feel like when you have a partner, it's like weird at first to show emotions, but then normally someone's like, you got to give me something. Like, it it gets hard to like, get to that vulnerable point where it's like, okay, I am sad about this. It feels silly. And they're like, you know, no, it's okay. Like you're, did, was there anything in that relationship where maybe you were like, oh, it is okay to show this or with friends? Or did you just think that was just like, the standard was like, no, 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 everything's okay. I love my life. Oh, well,
1: I thought being strong meant always being positive. Vulnerability wasn't even in my vocabulary. I would have equated that with weakness. And even when I met my um, husband, we met first year of law school, got married the summer after we graduated after the bar exam. And, um, even then it was almost like I had this wall in front of me that I wasn't allowed to be vulnerable. I was a very, I always had plenty of friends, but I was always very private. It was really hard for me to let people in probably cause I was scared of letting someone in and then losing them because I had lost my parents and, um, and things like that. But, um, it wasn't really until after my diagnosis with my eating disorder, anxiety, mild depression, um, it was actually through outpatient professional treatment with a dietician and and a therapist that I learned that vulnerability was necessary, that if I were to heal, I had to allow myself to be vulnerable. So here I'm in my 40s for the very first time in my life, getting in touch with all these experiences and emotions. I was so tightly wound, always on autopilot growing up. It was school and tennis, college school and tennis, And some social life too. Um, And then afterwards, you know, working, law school, kids, I was just go, go, go be the perfect this, the perfect that. But in recovery, I learned, you know, perfection should never be the goal because it just sets us up for feeling like we're never going to get there. And I literally had to learn that vulnerability was necessary, that it was okay to be human, that it was okay to feel all different types of emotions But imagine learning that and acting upon that for the very first time in my forties. So with my own kids, it's been completely different. Fortunately, they were much more well-rounded than I was (laughs) for me. It was always, you know, tennis. They have a lot of interest. Yes. They played high school tennis and had me as their coach, poor things, but um, they're much more well-rounded. I always encourage them to talk about what was on their mind, what was bothering them. So Um, I learned a lot from my difficult experiences that hopefully made me a better mother, but it was, you know, it was part of the process.
0: You read my mind. I was going to say from like, because in your forties, I mean, I don't need to like get the dates when your kids were born, but I would assume they were younger. So like, was there a shift in how you were parenting pre and
1: post outpatient? Mm Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I have three children. My oldest is 29 and my twins literally just turned 21 last week, just finished their junior year of college and my oldest is married and working in the DC area. When my oldest was growing up, I was very much still in that I have to be the perfect mom. Um, my mom died when when she was three. I went on you know there's no place for grief or sadness. my relationship with my mom was so complicated we just set that aside you know be the perfect mom whatever and my twins were born in in 2002 and um, at you know early on in their life was when I really started struggling. Um, I was diagnosed with pretty significant asthma. I'd just gotten back into tennis. And, um, so it was a combination of factors that actually led to the diagnosis of my eating disorder. So the twins were pretty young when all this happened. So they could still, they were still home long enough to hopefully benefit from my becoming healthier and mind, body and spirit and being more in touch with emotions and all that. Um, but my oldest was growing up during, you know, most of those years when, I was struggling with anxiety. I didn't know I had, I definitely suffered from mild depression. I just always felt like there was this sadness just below the surface. But again, I couldn't touch that because I didn't know it was okay.
0: It's yeah. No, thank you for sharing all that. I still, it's just so, I don't know. Life is, life is crazy, but, I, it's just still so fascinating to me like all of these things that they comp like what you were saying they compound and all of a sudden you wake up and we don't wake up they happen over time but you know one day it's like holy crap like how how did I miss this right like how was I so hyper focused on being this thing and this person that it was all like right in front of me of what was what was going on and what was below the surface surface but it was never like a, conver- a conversation.
1: Um, Yeah, actually, even, you know, I, like I said, I went back and read all these childhood diaries in preparation for writing my memoir. My anxiety was so bad, especially around health and safety issues. As a kid, you know, you go to the pediatrician and you're if you're a healthy kid, your worst fear is maybe you're going to get a shot that day. I would write in my diary, you know, I have my checkup. I am so scared something's going to be wrong with me. And same thing, like if I was babysitting for my little sister and my mom was out for a meeting and she was two minutes late instead of, oh, well, she probably ran into somebody she was talking in the parking lot. I'd be like, oh, my God, something happened. Like I had so much anxiety around health and safety, but I didn't even realize that until I went back a few years ago and was reading all these childhood diaries um, and my anxiety was actually diagnosed. Before, way before my memoir in my forties when I was diagnosed with asthma and um, had to learn to manage a a serious chronic illness. I'd barely ever taken Advil for a headache. You know, I'd always been this athletic, healthy person. All of a sudden I was a lot of shortness of breath and um, my anxiety was, you know, through the roof because... Um, I worried I wouldn't be able to take care of my children because I couldn't be that on the go mom I love to be. And the other piece of that was getting back into tennis, playing my own competitive tennis again at a pretty high level, but also coaching high school tennis. And then when my asthma would keep me off the court, my anxiety and depression, I called it an asthma funk. I would just spy spiral downward, but it was really anxiety and and mild depression so it was it was all interconnected but you know tennis coming back into my life brought my coaching career and all these great friendships but yet it also became intertwined i developed this very intense fear of weight gain cuz when i got back into it i became very fit and muscular again and got all these positive compliments and you know became part of my identity again just like we started this conversation so when you would take the tennis out because i was sick with asthma You know, what could I could control? I could control my food intake, and that's what happened.
0: We are gonna take a quick break, and I'll get back to Betsy in a moment. I'd like to take a second to talk about Morgan's message, without whom this podcast would not be possible. Morgan's message is simple. Amplify stories, resources, and expertise to strengthen student athlete mental health. Building a community by and for athletes through peer-to-peer conversations and providing a platform for advocacy. Our vision is to eliminate the stigma surrounding mental health within the high school and collegiate student athlete communities equalize the treatment of physical and mental health in athletics, normalize conversations in safe spaces, encourage peer-to-peer communications, empower those who suffer in silence, and support those who feel alone. Morgan's message was founded in 2019 in honor of Morgan Rogers, a beloved friend, sister, daughter, athlete, teammate, artist, music lover, and so much more. To get involved with Morgan's Message, to find out more, or to just follow along, you can head to morgansmessage.org or follow us on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn at morgansmessage. With that, let's get back to Betsy. talk a little bit about like (sighs) when you got diagnosed with um and and you can correct me if I'm wrong like it sounds like it was kind of almost like all at the same time like anxiety disordered eating depression like what was your immediate reaction like was it like what are you talking about or were you like oh that you know what that makes sense like can you talk a little bit on that and kind of how you were able to digest it and take next steps to do outpatient?
1: Well, I was certainly struggling with the asthma diagnosis. And as someone with anxiety, I wanted to see this in black and white here, take this and you'll feel better. But asthma meds were in that sort of that gray that is very hard for those of us with anxiety. It was more like, ah, try this. You might need a higher dose or we can try a different one and that would make me so anxious i just wanted someone to be able to say you take this your breathing will get better and um so someone close to me had said you know you really need to talk to someone you really should see a therapist and learn how to manage your chronic illness and all that and again not being able to be vulnerable you know i was i'm fine i'm fine i'm doing just fine you know so um i eventually because i was really struggling And like I said, when it kept me off the tennis court um, for periods of time, and I just developed this intense fear of weight gain. So then I started restricting my food intake when I couldn't play tennis. And then I also felt like a failure as a mom because I couldn't be on the go. Like, so it was just really a combination of it. And it was that first therapist who um, diagnosed the anxiety and mild depression. And it was in his office that I really first started talking about some of my experiences but I still had that wall up. There was no vulnerability. There was no feeling of feelings. It was more just starting to talk about my experiences. And he made the diagnosis of asthma and mild depression. It wasn't till a few years later when a physician actually noticed the weight loss. And um, and I'm 5'2". I'm very small, small frame. I didn't have 10 pounds to lose. And um, so I was referred to a dietitian and a therapist who specialized in eating disorder. So um, before I really began the hard work with the other therapist, although, you know, we certainly started, although that wall was still up, um, it was with the dietitian and the therapist who specialized in eating disorders where I was diagnosed with the eating disorder and understood that the eating disorder wasn't about the food. It was a way of numbing all those emotions. I didn't want to express all those emotions. I didn't know it was okay to express, but also it was a way to reduce anxiety, reduce the depression. Um, eating disorders serve as a maladaptive way of coping and mine took hold at that point, um, as a result of all those factors. So it was a process letting my guard down and I'm I'll always be thankful to my dietician and this therapist who specialized in eating disorders that I finally allowed myself sort of to take that wall down brick by brick and let vulnerability in, let feelings in. I had so much to learn about the disorder itself and um, that it wasn't my fault. It developed as a result of all these other things and also what would be necessary uh, in recovery and that the eating disorder needed to be treated, but I also had to learn to manage the anxiety and the depression and understand that those were illnesses. They were not my fault. Cause of course, you know, I couldn't at first accept that, um, that anything was wrong. Yeah.
0: What, what were some of your biggest, I guess, like looking back, we'll start with maybe the anxiety and mild depression, like getting diagnosed with that, that feels like it could be, you know, whoa, like, okay, what were some of the biggest, like, learnings that you, or big moments before you kind of, you know, were diagnosed with disordered eating, like, that you can remember looking back on that were kind of monumental and part of the healing journey?
1: Do you mean more in the recovery process or, or be like at the time of the diagnosis? Cause it's definitely recovery is never linear. There's always yeah. forwards, backwards, sideways. I check all those boxes, but yeah, I think
0: like the initial diagnosis, like, okay. Yeah. yeah. That's a
1: really good question because here I was in my forties, I'm diagnosed with anorexia and honestly I had the same preconceived notions that most people have. How could I have anorexia? I'm not emaciated. I'm not 16 or 20, whatever. I'm a mom of three. You know, I have a career as a coach. I, You know, how could I have an eating disorder? You know, I, as an athlete, um, there was always a very strong connection between food and exercise, like there is for many athletes But because of this undiagnosed anxiety and depression and asthma keeping me off the tennis court and the fear of weight gain, I started heading down this very dangerous path, restricting my food intake. And, um, you know, my brain was already wired in this anxious way. So um, feeling so out of control from the asthma, the food intake was something I could control. And then once you start, it can be a very quick downward spiral. So what may have started out initially as just a, an athlete being very aware of what they put in their body and how much they exercise. Um, I guess a really good metaphor, my um, my therapist described it almost like a pot of water was sort of simmering on the back burner. It was always there, but just sort of simmering. And with the diagnosis, um, it was came to a full boil on the, in, on the front burner. So it was always there. And I, again, in those same diaries, I would write things like, oh, Jeff wants to have pizza tonight, but I didn't exercise. I better go up to the gym first. But it, it um, with disordered eating, becoming an eating disorder, a clinically diagnosed eating disorder, you really look at how much it's impairing your life, And it started to impair my life more. I was literally consumed by thoughts about food and exercise all day. So I was living my normal life, but I couldn't always be fully present, but I kept it a secret. There's so much shame and secrecy with mental illness. And I think even more so when we're older, because people don't understand expect, you know, you're an adult, but, you know, just do what you need to do. Not understanding that this was beyond my control so, I was headed down a very dangerous path with the disordered eating and the diagnosis, but fortunately, I got help before I needed a higher level of care. So, my treatment was all outpatient. Um but I was on these two parallel roads. I was, you know, that perfect good girl going to all my appointments, doing what they said. But that other road was being that mom and coaching tennis and wife and friend and all that. And there was so much shame and secrecy having all these mental health diagnoses, the eating disorder, anxiety, depression, I didn't know how to let people in to help me. And that's very common. And, um, you know, my husband would say like, oh, I'm the worst husband. I didn't support you well enough. Well, when you're consumed by the illness, you don't know how to let someone in. You don't know how to let someone help you because you can't even articulate it yourself. So it was much further along that road to recovery where I could start to let people in and admit my struggles. Um, But honestly, I kept it very secret um, from most people in my life until literally in 2021, the night before I released the cover of my memoir. Um, You can see it Um, before I released that it was February of 2021. I finished my manuscript in January The night before I was gonna release the cover on my social media, I was so anxious because everyone would know that I had struggled with an eating disorder. That's how secret it was. And this was years later. I was probably diagnosed in 2010, 2011. And then I wrote my manuscript during the height of the pandemic from March of 2020 to January of 2021. It was published in May of 2021. But that February was the first time that I literally went from being such a private person to putting it out there that I'd struggled with an eating disorder. And it was an illness that I would have to always manage. Um, And I was so worried about what the response would be from people in my life. And um, then once my memoir came out, I literally became an open book. There's no secrets. And, um, and the word now that comes to mind is freedom. I just feel like I was so tightly wound for so many decades And then now all of a sudden, you know what? It's out there. Take it or leave it. You find out a lot about people in your life who can talk about mental health issues, who can just say, oh, that's nice that you wrote a book, but wouldn't touch the substance of it. Um, And everyone processes life in different ways. I don't hold anything against anyone, Um, but I just feel so free now that it's, it's like I put together a jigsaw puzzle of my whole life and literally figured out, how all the pieces fit together. So now I understand, you know, young Betsy, the sad inner child, how the anxiety and and depression ultimately led to this eating disorder in midlife. I just have this understanding um, and the hard work of recovery. You know, there's no shortcuts. Recovering from any illness is a long, difficult journey and I'm no exception. Um, But recovery brings healing on so many levels. And um, my message is it's never too late to be a work in progress. I mean, whether you're your age, my age, in between, whatever, it's never too late. We can always become healthier in mind, body, and spirit.
0: I love that. This might be a loaded question. Um, (laughs) That's okay. You were... You know, saying that like you were very private. Why, why did you want to write a book and essentially just like put it all out there when you, you know, weren't and you were having this anxiety before you released the cover? Like, what? I guess like what led you to be like, you know, what I'm going to sit down
1: and I'm going to write this. Um, That's that's a great question, and the answer is interesting. I had. Written my recovery story from my eating disorder in 2018, and I had had the privilege of sharing it at treatment centers in Boston. But again, I kept it a secret. It was very empowering and amazing feeling to share my story in the eating disorder community, but I still hadn't let anybody in. But I had been told, not just by my husband, but some professionals, that my life story had the makings of a book. Um, multiple people told me that if I were willing to put the time and effort into it and expand on my recovery story, which, um, you know, obviously just touched on things and then focus more on the recovery part. So, you know, I'm involved in all these things who has time to put that thought and effort and time into writing a memoir. And literally in February of 2020, I'd just been starting to go back and forth with someone in the eating disorder world. Um, who professionally helps people use writing to heal from past trauma. And um starting to talk with her about what it would look like to start mapping out my life and writing about it. And then in March of 2020, life as we knew it completely shut down. So I just started writing one chapter at a time. I had no idea that it would ever even be published or that I would become this open book. I thought maybe my family and friends will humor me. Um, and read it, I had no idea um, what my next chapter would be. And and I'm grateful to be living it each and every day. So, um, but for the pandemic, honestly, I could be on chapter two by now. I mean, I literally was given the gift of time, those 10 months when everything I was involved in wasn't happening. um, Yep. So I never planned to write a book. I never planned to be an author. It, It just sort of unfolded that way.
0: That's really cool. I, I, I think that like writing can be very therapeutic um, and like journaling for me in particular, getting your thoughts out on paper. But I also think it's, I'm, I'm kind of in awe and I, I truly admire you writing a book because it's really hard, I think, to put your experiences out there and block out the noise of what people are saying to like the point of validation that, you know, goes back to that because you're going to get people who are like, this is amazing. Thank you so much for sharing. And then you're going to get people that are like, you know, like who cares, blah, blah, blah. And and I think like when you place value on the good, you place value on the bad. And usually the bad sticks with you versus that you can get like five great things. And then that one bad thing, at least for me, that's what tends to like stay in my brain for, I mean, there's probably psychology behind it, but for whatever <laughs> reason. um, So I think that's amazing. What's been like the best, the most rewarding part of writing your book
1: that you didn't see coming? Well, like I said, first of all, you know, I wrote it to help myself heal on the deepest level, which it has certainly. I no longer feel that sadness just below the level. But what has been absolutely most gratifying, without a doubt, is the ability to give hope to those who are struggling. And um, I hear from readers around the country, even around the world, especially older women who have struggled for as long as they can remember and have just assumed, you know, I've been struggling for X number of years. This is just the way it's going to be. So to give people hope that recovery is possible at any age. And for me, it was an eating disorder, obviously combined with those other factors, almost everyone who suffers from an eating disorder also has co-occurring conditions like anxiety, depression, whatever. So I hear from readers and they're just like, I can relate to so much in your story. You give me hope that that I can still heal, that I can recover. So that has just become so gratifying to be able to give people hope and know that my story is helping others. When here I thought, yeah, it's going to help me heal to put my story into words. I had no idea that I would have the ability to have an impact on those who are struggling to the point now where I travel and speak at treatment centers and with clinicians staff conferences and um it's become my next chapter and i am just enjoying every minute of it and um I, i'll always have a special place in my heart for athletes and um i'm doing more and more with athletes as well because i understand that mindset and Um, and it also as a coach, um, dealing with some of my players issues and knowing how to help them and caring about them as an individual off the court, as well as their performance on the court. Um, so I check a lot of boxes and there's a lot of different directions and I'm just enjoying this, this next chapter and it's beyond anything I ever could have imagined.
0: That's incredible. Um, I know we're, we're coming up on time. I have kind of one last question around your journey and, and it really relates to like the healing journey. Like what's, and kind of like you said, it's not linear. Um, but what were some of the bigger moments in your healing journey looking back now that were either impactful or like the hardest moments to work through? Can you give any kind of
1: insight there? Sure. Um, I think one of the hardest things that I had to learn was that the hard work of recovery, nobody can do it for you. You know, my dietician was very supportive, put together meal plans. I was accountable to her. She'd help me figure out what I needed to do when, how to add more here, there, whatever. But at the end of the day, I'm the one who had to eat the food. And there's no shortcuts. I had to do it. Same thing with my therapist. You know, we she knew what questions to ask to help me start talking about some of the difficult experiences in my life. But the sessions were 45 minutes and, you know, we'd just be starting to talk on, about something. I might even tear up and then time's up. I'd go into my car and just start sobbing. That was feeling the feelings. I had to do the hard work of recovery. But I also learned that nobody can do it alone. Any type of mental illness and eating disorders as well, um, which are a significant mental illness, they thrive in isolation and support is essential. Um, Professional support and treatment is essential. But one role I love now that um, has come out of all this is I love being a peer support mentor to many and I run peer support groups. And, um, just being that person who gets it, that person, the power of lived experience. So when someone shares something that I would feel I needed to share, let's say I, you know, ate a sandwich for lunch and was really proud of myself um, you know, I can be that person that someone can share that with. Whereas if you shared it, that with someone who doesn't understand the struggle, they'd be like, yeah, I eat a sandwich every day. What's the big deal? But someone trying to recover from an eating disorder, that can be a huge deal. Um, so I, I just, um, so the, the biggest things in my own recovery, going back to your question, one is it sounds so simple, but learning that um, I could be human that was one of the very first things that it was okay to be human. It didn't have to be perfect. My recovery didn't have to be perfect. Um, I could be human. I could feel feelings. I could feel conflicting feelings at the same time, because don't forget I would feel guilty if there was anything negative, but I learned, you know, I can be really happy, but also feel sad. You know, they can coexist um, somehow, Um, and, and most of all, just learning to use my voice to ask for what I need. My whole life had been taking care of everyone else's needs, but learning that self-care isn't selfish. I need to take care of myself and my own needs. Um, and that it's not all about taking care of everyone else. I mean, obviously I love the caregiving roles in my life. Uh, But we can't leave ourselves behind in that. So self-care was huge, using my voice, being vulnerable, um, getting off that path where I always felt I had to be perfect at whatever I did and also enjoying my sport for what it is. Tennis is certainly a sport of a lifetime and just enjoying it for what it is, not connecting what I eat based on how much I played tennis, just learning to enjoy the sport in a healthy way with a healthy balance in my life. It's a piece of my identity, certainly. And I'm grateful it came back in my life, but it's not my whole identity. My day isn't ruined because I didn't play well. Um, So some of those things I learned just as I got older, but a lot of those things, um, you know, have been part of my recovery journey.
0: That's also incredible. Um, I have some closing questions for you, if that's, we can go there. My first closing question, what, if anyone listening is going to like thinking about getting your book, like what's, what do you think is something that is so valuable that they'll walk away from, walk away with after they read it?
1: Well, my book is titled The Longest Match, Rallying to Defeat an Eating Disorder in Midlife. But because it goes through my whole journey, it talks about all the good things as well. But it's a lot about my experience with anxiety and depression. It's a lot about my experience with grief and loss. And then, of course, my eating disorder. But it's also about recovery and healing. And I think anybody could relate to it, even if you haven't been through the exact same things as I've been through. Because what we learn as we get older is nobody gets through life without going through something. So my book is about healing. For me, you know what it was about. For others, it could be something completely different. But my message is it's never too late to be a work in progress. We can always heal if we do the hard work of recovery. So um, I would hope anyone who reads my book could relate to at least one aspect of my story, but also take it as um, inspiring and hopeful for whatever it is the reader is struggling with. Amazing.
0: And my last closing question, what are you most grateful
1: for? I am so grateful to be living this next chapter of my life. People say, oh, when's your next book coming out? And I'll be like, there is no next book. I'm living my next chapter. My kids are in college. My husband's working a lot. This is what I do. I speak, I travel, I run groups, I mentor, and there's nothing more fulfilling than doing what I'm doing now. I am so grateful for all the opportunities and the most importantly, the new connections in my life, connecting with others who are real and authentic instead of always feeling like we have to be a certain way. Just that authenticity and freedom that has come as a result of my own journey and writing my memoir. I've met so many wonderful new connections in my life. And I think I'm most grateful for that people with whom I can be my true authentic self. Amazing. Um, Betsy, thank you so much for
0: coming on the mental matchup and getting right into it and just giving us so much, I don't know, so much valuable information from your own personal experiences and what, what you've seen and what you've learned, um, and really passing it on to, to other people to learn from
1: thank you so much i'm I'm truly honored and um the last thing i'll just say is for those who are more your generation thinking like how can i benefit from you know an older woman's book <laughs> just remember that my whole story is a cumulative effect of everything i went through from early childhood on so so true well thank you again thank you so much
0: Another huge thank you to Betsy for coming on The Mental Matchup, sharing not only her story, but just such great tidbits and insights into someone who has experienced a lot and experienced a lot of things that other people may have gone through, may go through, uh, may currently be going through. And I'm just so grateful for her willingness to share and to really get into you know some personal experiences details I just I'm in awe I, I thought it was a great conversation I know I walked away from the conversation with so many good little tidbits and insights and things that I hadn't previously kind of thought of when I looked at you know I, I when I looked at someone who has you know multiple kids and a husband and is entering midlife and I think it's so powerful that she's reflected on all the things that's made her who she is today and has pushed her through all these experiences and is just so is more than willing to share right and be that beacon of hope um that it's never too late to you know learn and grow um It's just amazing. So Betsy, thank you so much for coming on. If you're interested in learning more about Betsy, you can get her memoir, The Longest Match, Rallying to Defeat an Eating Disorder in Midlife at her site at BetsyBrenner.com. If you're interested in coming on the Mental Matchup, submitting a story to our blog piece, Please reach out. You can head to morgansmessage.org. You can DM or you can email submission at morgansmessage.org. Another huge thank you to Morgan's Message for presenting this podcast. It's such an incredible platform and it's also incredibly empowering. Um, I am so, so, so beyond grateful that through morgan's message we've been able to create this storytelling space for you know real people to share their real experiences and and connect one of us together over over topics that can be really hard to talk about and with that we will see you next episode